All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary. I'm Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17, through the first couple verses of chapter 5. It's another one of those unfortunate chapter breaks in the New Testament where really the paragraph overlaps the chapter division. So we're going to go from 417 to 52, which really is uh, kind of one unit of thought, but it has two parts to it, all right? Uh, here, Paul really is still dealing with the issue of how Christians are to live. This whole second half of Ephesians really largely revolves around that, how Christians are supposed to live now that they're part of God's people and they've been welcomed into everything he's doing in the world. And it's connected to what proceeds in this way. Since we're the new humanity, and since we're called to work together so that we can all attain to the stature of Christ, that's what he just wrapped up there in verses 15 and 16, well, there are some lifestyle implications that come with that. If, if we're God's people, how do we live in light of that? How do we live out our new humanity to attain to the maturity that's in keeping with Jesus and the standard and the measure of which Jesus is the perfect human? And so that's really the focus of this section. Paul really now begins to turn his attention to just lifestyle implications for the people of God today. This particular section has two parts, verses 17 through 24 and verses 25 through 5-2. 17 through 24 is the call to put on the new man, just that general call that Look, God made you new. He's called you as his people. He's given you his spirit. He's uh, saved you from your sins. You are a new creation. You're a new humanity. Live like it. Live who you are. So 17 through 24 is the call to put on the new man. And then 25 through 5-2 are some specific examples of how the new man is supposed to live. That's the way this whole section works. So let's look at the first part, verses 17 through 24, where we have the general call to put on the new humanity, put on the new man. Really what he's saying here is don't act like the pagan world around you. Put on the new man. And so Paul now changes focus to another aspect of what it means to walk worthy of our calling. First, he challenged us to walk worthy of being God's people by living in unity, even a unity that expresses itself in some diversity because of the gifts that Christ has given us. Now he challenges us to walk worthy of being the people of God's by just putting on the very way of life that's in keeping with Jesus himself. This is what he says. He says in verse 17, so I say to you and affirm together with the Lord. That's just sort of a that's a stock sort of way of opening this kind of teaching to emphasize really the the importance of it and the um, solemnity of it. Like this, this is serious stuff he's about to say. So he says sort of this almost opening formula. This is what I say and I affirm together with the Lord. Me and the Lord are of the same mind on this. That you walk, he says, no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And so this is the call to walk, 
no longer as the Gentiles walk. Remember, walking is just going about your life, carrying out your life. So don't carry out your life, he's saying, the way the Gentiles carry out their life. And the Gentiles obviously are the, I mean, most literally non-Jews. So you have the Jewish world and the Gentile world. So Gentiles most technically, literally refers to the non-Jewish world. But much of Paul's audience would be Gentiles. They grew up as living the Gentile way of life. That's sort of his point. He's talking about the kind of life that the fallen world around you, those apart from God, those who didn't know God's word, who weren't instructed in God's way, and who lived completely devoid of God's truth and God's way of life, don't walk like that anymore. That's the way you used to walk when you, before you came to faith in Jesus and became his disciple, but don't walk that way anymore. So you don't live like the fallen or pagan world around you. And then he lists off just some descriptors, some generalizations of that fallen or pagan word. And so it's sort of a, a list that generalizes the pagan lifestyle and the problems with the pagan lifestyle. As we go through the list, notice how many of his descriptors have to do with the way they think and what's in their mind and the ideas and images that are so important to them. And so the first one is the futility of their mind. Don't walk the way the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. That is, uh, their, their mind, uh, their mental and intellectual pursuits are fruitless. That's the idea of futility. They're fruitless. They're they're good-for-nothing ideas. Their thinking is sort of empty. It's a dead-end road. So you don't want to follow that way of life because it's a dead-end road. And just the, the intellectual pursuits, the intellectual thoughts, the reasoning process is bad. It just doesn't work, right? So in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. Notice we have another descriptive of their mental processes and the way they think and how they understand life and the way they view the world and what they view as important. It's darkened, Paul says. It's darkened. Um, they just can't see. It's like living in the dark. It's like feeling your way through a dark room. And it's like that's sort of their approach to life. It's darkened. He goes on and he says, uh, excluded from the life of God. And so the world outside of Christ and apart from Christ is excluded from the life of God. Um, that is, they, they don't know what God is up to. They don't know what is important to God. Like, really, the essence of um, the purpose of life for human beings, the main goal that we're all supposed to pursue as human beings is to participate in the life of God. And they're not. They're going their own way. They're doing their own thing. They have no connection with God. They have no relationship with God. They might even believe in God. They might even mention God. They just don't know him in truth. They don't walk with him fully. They don't have any connection with him. So they're excluded from the life of God. They're excluded from who God is and what God is up to. And then the very life that that brings to our own existence. So they're excluded outside of is the idea from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So their futile minds, their darkened understanding has led to a state of ignorance about what life is really about and what really matters. And that has just cut them off from God, cut them off from the experience of the truth and the, the, the life that that truth brings. 
And he says, and that's because, at the end of verse 18, that's because of the hardness of their heart. So they've got a hard-hearted, which seems to speak of really a loss of moral sensitivity. Wrong no longer hurts anymore. Their, their guilty conscience is just, it's kind of calloused over, and that's actually the next descriptor he uses, right? So they have, they're hard-hearted. Hard-hearted towards people, hard-hearted towards the truth, hard-hearted towards their own behavior. They're just hard-hearted. Um, next, he describes them as callous. They have become callous. Callous is the idea, you know, literally, obviously, you think of calluses on your hands after someone who works with their hands, and their hands have a buildup of hard skin. Well, it's really a parallel to hard-hearted. It's the idea that their heart is just calloused over. It's insensitive. It doesn't feel hardly anything anymore. They're not sensitive to God. They're not sensitive to truth. They're not sensitive to right and wrong. Their moral compass is stuck, and they can't tell the difference. They've lost all moral sensitivity. That's the idea. So they're callous, he says in verse 19, and they have given themselves over to sensuality. What sensuality? Well, sensuality is really just a lifestyle to feed the five senses. If it feels good, do it. That sensuality, that motto describes the sensual life. Like if it feels good, do it. Whatever you, whatever you, whatever feels good to you, go for it. Like if it makes you feel good, makes you happy, right? Just do it. It's if it looks good, tastes good, smells good, right? Feels good, do it. That's sensuality. So living to feed the five senses, the passions, the human fleshly passions, sensuality. And then he actually goes on and says they've, they've given themselves so far over to sensuality that they, 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 it's led to the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Notice that. Every kind of impurity. Impurity just means dirtiness. Things that are filthy, things that are dirty, things that are impure, right? Like, and they've given themselves over to practicing that with greediness. Like they're constantly wanting more impurity, more things that you know are just dirty, filthy, impure. And so they've given themselves over to that with greediness. And so this is Paul's generalization, really. And yes, it's broad, sweeping, generalizing strokes, but it it it's not out of sync with what we know of the ancient world. In fact, even moral philosophers who didn't know God, didn't know the scriptures, moral philosophers of the day sometimes painted their very culture this way. Um, but this was just kind of characteristic of Greco-Roman culture, largely and, and sweepingly, not every individual, but generally speaking, this was the way it is. And it's still largely the way it is today. Like, um, the further a culture gets from the truth of God, the more this description fits um, how they are. And so Paul says, don't walk that way. Like, don't live that way. He goes on then in verse 20 and says, but you, so notice the contrast. This is the pagan way of life I've just described. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Notice how stark he says it. You did not learn Christ. He doesn't even say learn about Christ. He says learn Christ. That like being a disciple is essentially learning the way of Jesus. Like you're imitating Jesus. You, you've attached yourself to Jesus to become like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple in the most basic sense. So you're learning Christ. You're learning who he is, what he values, what's important to him, his way of life. And you're beginning to practice that. And so you didn't learn Christ that way. And that's Paul's general description of really the shift to becoming a disciple. Like 
you used to be one of these pagans who were darkened in their understanding, who were callous and hard-hearted. But then you met Christ and you learned a new way. And so you didn't learn Christ that way. Then he says in verse 21, If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. And this is Paul's way, sort of just a little bit of persuasive appeal to, to remind them. No, you've heard about Jesus. You learned a different way. And if you really heard about Jesus, and if you really have been taught by Jesus, and you've learned the truth, notice that truth in oppo as opposed to that futile thinking, that darkened understanding, that ignorance. No, you learned the truth. Truth about God, truth about the world, truth about yourself, truth about what's important in life. You learn the truth in Jesus. One of the things that this emphasis on learning Jesus and the truth that is in Jesus reminds us of is that there is a there's an important learning component to being a disciple of Jesus. It's it's not it's not all feeling, right? It's not all doing. There's a learning, an intellectual component. There are things we have to know. There's things we have to understand. We're apprehending the truth and figuring out what's really real and what's really true. Jesus himself actually said that in John chapter 8, that um, if you're my disciple, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you do that, he said, by abiding in my word. That is, by abiding in his teaching. And so there's a learning, a teaching and learning component to making disciples and to being disciples. Let's never minimize that, that there are things we have to teach people. There are things people have to understand. There's things we have to learn and things we have to understand to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, what does Paul say they learned? What have they been taught? Well, verses 22 through 24 answer that question. And what Paul will say in a nutshell is they have been taught to take off the old man, to be renewed in their thinking, and to be and to put on the new man. So that's sort of the framework of these next few verses. And that's really going to be the kind of the general call and for living out the life that we've been given in Christ. And so this is what he says in verses 22 through 24. I'm going to read all four of these verses, then we'll go back and you can hear the details. So he says that, here's what you've been taught, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lusts of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So this is what this is what they had been taught when they became believers. This is what we need to make sure we're teaching when we lead somebody to faith in Christ. That to, to the gospel we preach should lead them, should include teaching them to put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of their mind, and put on the new self. And so he says, here's what you've been taught, uh, that in reference to your former manner of life, which he's just described generally up above, uh, that you lay aside the old self. You take that off and set that aside. That's no longer who you are. So that imagery of laying aside is almost like taking off old, dirty clothes. You take off these old, dirty clothes and you get rid of them. You lay them aside. Why? Because that's not who you are anymore. In fact, the grammar of this of this phrase, lay aside the old self, in Greek it's aorist. And what that means here in this construction is really it's speaking about sort of like almost a once-for-all action. When you, 
when you transferred into the kingdom of God, there was a change of clothes that happened, right? Like your old, filthy, dirty clothes. It's like, let's get you dressed now. Let's get you some nice new clothes. That's sort of the imagery. And we're speaking of our character. We're speaking of the way of life. And so that old way of life, when you came into Christ, you were taught to get rid of that. Let's just throw those old clothes away, put them in the garbage sack. We'll go burn them in the burn pile. And when he says old self, literally it's old man. And by old man, he means your old humanity. If you if you read Paul's um, letters quite consistently, you'll realize Paul has this idea of old man, meaning that in Adam in you, that person who was merely in Adam. You're, you're no longer just an Adam. You, you've transferred now to being in Christ and the new man, right? The new humanity in Christ. And so the old man is the in Adam you. And you you set that aside, that identity, that way of life that was associated with fallen, broken down humanity. You set that aside when you came into Christ. So you were taught that. Um, that old man, he says, is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So it's being corrupted. It's being ruined, right? It's, it's wearing out. It's wearing down. It doesn't work right. It's all corrupted and corroded and decrepit. So it's being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit or the desires of deceit. That word lust just means desires. So it's being corrupted um, in keeping with deceitful desires. That's just a really great description that our fallen des desires are deceitful. They promised more than they can give, right? They make us think, oh, if I, if I get that or if I do that, oh, this is how my life, I'll finally be happy. I'll finally feel like, oh, and everything will work out. It doesn't work. They're lying to us, right? They're deceitful. And so those desires lead us into corruption, into brokenness, into kind of a worn out, broken down, miserable way of life. We were taught when we came to Christ to set that aside. Additionally, we were also taught to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. What does he mean by that? Well, be renewed um, is the idea of obviously start thinking straight again. You start thinking new ways, right? This is being renewed in the spirit of your mind. There is some scholarly question about what does it mean by the spirit of your mind? Is he referring to the Holy Spirit or is he referring to just the way your mind thinks? It's not 100% clear actually, but it would just be really odd the wording for the spirit of your mind because the Holy Spirit isn't of your mind. So probably he's referring to the way your mind operates, right? Maybe the Holy Spirit's sort of in the background. Obviously, we know that all of this is empowered by and enabled by the Spirit that has been given to us. So certainly he's at work in this renewing process. But it seems to be focusing more on be renewed in the spirit of your mind, in the operating system of your mind, the way your mind works and the things your mind thinks about. And in fact, the verb here for being renewed is in the present tense. So where we saw lay aside the old self was aorist tense. Here we have the present tense, which in this construction refers to continuing action. And so being renewed in the spirit of your mind is going to involve ongoing daily learning, growing, renewal, like a good part of Christian living is actually having our own personal computer reprogrammed on an ongoing basis, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2 would be a good parallel here, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, 
or Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, that the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. So there's this, this mental work that has to be done. There's this mindset that needs to be acquired, and we keep learning how to do that. Obviously, at the heart of that, when we talk about practices for that, reading the Bible is going to be key. In fact, statistically, reading the Bible is the number one catalyst for spiritual growth and spiritual development. So we should read the Bible. We should memorize the scriptures. We should meditate on it, which just means to reflect on it, imagine it, ponder it, absorb it into our mind and our heart by regularly chewing it up and thinking about what it would look like to live it out and imagine how we would feel if we believe that truth truth. So we take in God's word and our mind is renewed. And so be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So lay aside the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then verse 24, the, the third part of what we have been taught in Jesus was to put on the new self or literally the new man. And so we have been taught to put that on. That's our new identity. We're going to wear that. We're going to wear the clothes of Jesus and Jesus' way of life and what Jesus said to do, we begin to imitate Jesus. We begin to see what Jesus says is important. We put it into practice, right? So we put on the new man, our new identity, which is in Christ, which Paul says in verse 24, which in the likeness of God has been created, or literally which is according to God. It's after the pattern of God. So this new man is patterned after God himself. Hopefully you hear in that echoes of Genesis 1.26, that we were made in the image of God. When God created human beings, he said, let us make mankind in our image. Well, now this new man is uh, patterned after the very uh, image of God. In other words, we're being restored to the image of God that we lost by virtue of disobeying God and breaking faith with God. So, which is after or according to God himself and has been created. We are a new creation in Christ, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Notice that the falsehood, the darkness, the confusion, all of that up above is counteracted by the truth. We've learned the truth in Jesus, and that truth is marked by righteousness, the right way of living life, and holiness. The more holy you are, the more human you are, because the more you're living out the image of God that he intended for you. And so we have been instructed to put on the new self, which is patterned after the very image of God, which was being corrupted and ruined by virtue of our fallenness when we lived apart from God. Now, one important thing that all of this here reminds us of is that the world has an entire view of life in the universe, a worldview, if you will, that is at best unbiblical and at worst anti-biblical. That is, it is unreal, like literally contrary to reality. And the world defines life um, and describes what life is about in, in ways that just aren't real. They're not true. They're not based on the real world. And so, those outside of God and apart from God, they just don't live in the real world. And this fact affects everything about those who live according to the way of the world. As disciples of Jesus, we must unlearn this unreal way of life, and we must begin to see things and think about things according to the truth. That is, according to the way Jesus sees things, and according to the way Jesus thinks about things, because we've learned the truth in him, he lives in the real world, 
And we want to learn how to live in the real world from him. That's what it means to be his disciple. Now, Paul goes on then in the next section, verses 25 through 5-2, and he gives some examples then of how the new man lives. He talks about some things that we're supposed to put off and some things that we're supposed to put on. Remember, he had said, lay aside the old man. Well, here he's going to give some examples of the kinds of things we should lay aside and what we should replace them with that are in keeping with the truth that is in Jesus. Let's read what he says, beginning in verse 25. He says, therefore, Notice the connection. We're just drawing out some conclusions from what he just said. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. Notice the connection with laying aside the old man. Well, we lay aside falsehood. That's a part of the old man. Just living falsely, speaking false things, lying to each other, being deceitful, right? Tricking each other. Let's lay aside that as a way of doing life, managing relationships, right? Making ourselves look better than we are, making other people look worse than they are, right? Like we're more interested in protecting our own beliefs than learning the truth. So let's lay aside falsehood. And he says, speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we lay aside falsehood. And as we put on the new man, one of the things we put on is we speak the truth. We've already heard this up above where Paul said, speak the truth in love to one another, right? Here he calls us directly to do that. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. This is an expression of neighbor love. Like if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, then we need to speak the truth with each other. And so learn to speak truthfully. Be honest with each other. Why? Well, we are members of one another, he says. In other words, we're a body. We're part of each other. This is playing off that body imagery. And so he says, you need to speak the truth because we're members of each other. And we all know that Falsehood tears down trust and thus destroys relationships, whereas truth builds trust and thus builds relationships. And so to speak the truth enhances our body life together, our community life together. It's an important part of, of a one another environment among God's people. As we uh, learn to walk with Jesus, we've got to learn to speak the truth because that'll help us actually live together in harmony and do what's right by each other. So speak the truth. Be honest with each other. Next, he says in verse 26, here's something else to lay aside, something else to get rid of, and that's anger. He says, be angry and yet do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And so he's dealing with anger and he's dealing with the way we handle our anger. He actually calls us to be angry and do not sin. Now, one of the things that's really important to note about that phrase, be angry and do not sin, is it appears to be a quote from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. And if we miss that, we might miss the, the point or the context he's making. When you find an Old Testament passage quoted in a New Testament, one of the best things you could do is go read it in its Old Testament context so we could absorb kind of what is the point originally, how does that point fit what's being said here. When you read Psalm chapter 4 and you see what he says about be, be angry, it's this uh, imagery really of 
um, like you're you're upset, you're hurt, you're laying on your bed. It's it's nighttime. You're laying on your bed there in Psalm chapter four, and you're playing the tape in your mind, and you're stewing about what somebody did to you, and you're angry about that. And what Psalm chapter four says really is that you actually hand that over to God, and you let God deal with it, and you entrust Him with that hurt, you entrust Him with that wrong. And you entrust him to set things right and realize you let somebody off your hook and you leave them on God's hook. God will deal with it. And that's the reason he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger here, because in the original context in Psalm 4, it's picturing that. This person's getting ready to go to sleep. They're getting ready to go to bed, and they're just replaying what happened in their mind in Psalm 4. And he's calling us to say, guess what? You, you hand that over to God. You deal with that before you go to sleep instead of letting that stir in your heart all night long. If you do that, what Paul seems to think, according to the next line, is if you just keep stewing on it and stirring about it, you'll just give the devil an opportunity. The devil an opportunity to create bitterness in your heart. The devil an opportunity for you to, to plan some sort of uh, retaliation or some sort of evil, right? Like you've opened the door to the devil if you stew on your anger rather than just entrust God to deal with the person and deal with the situation. That's the primary point here of verses 26 and 27. And so in your anger, do not sin. You do that by handing it over to God, letting God deal with it. Before we leave that, let me just make a specific observation about the idea of righteous anger. It has frequently been taught from this passage that uh, when Paul says, be angry and do not sin, that means we should have righteous anger, like Jesus in the temple or those sorts of things. Here's the danger with that advice, is that whenever I'm angry or whenever you're angry, we think it's righteous anger. We think we have been wronged and a, uh, that wrong needs to be righted. And thus, anger in, in itself inherently is somewhat self-deceptive and makes us think we're in the right and the other person is wrong. And so if we advise disciples to practice righteous anger, all their anger just about is righteous anger. So I'm a little, little cautious to give that sort of advice, especially from this passage when the primary point in its original context seems more to be about not taking revenge, not taking retaliation, letting God handle it, and letting God deal with it. And so I think we should just focus on that point over against the righteous anger idea. Next, Paul goes on in verse 28, and he gives another example of something we should get rid of and what we should replace it with. That is stealing. He says this in verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. So lay aside stealing. Lay aside Stealing in whatever form it shows up or whatever form it comes in, you set that aside. That's part of the old way of doing life. The old man's approach to life is to steal and to take things for himself that don't belong to him. So set that aside. But rather, here's what a thief should do. A thief who becomes a disciple should lay aside stealing, but it's not enough just to quit stealing. There's other things you should add or replace it with. But rather, he must labor. He must work. In other words, get a job. He should actually be constructive. So it's not enough just to get rid of stealing. Let's replace it with labor, with working, performing with his own hands what is good. And so he replaces taking with contributing. He becomes a contributor and he 
He does things with his hands. He works, right? So he's performing with his own hands what is good. He's creating something, imitating his creator, and he's creating something. And not just so that he has uh, you know, means to provide for himself. Notice how Paul ends the thought. So that he will have something to share with someone who has a need. And so instead of being a taker, he becomes a contributor and he becomes a giver. The whole thought here is that we go from stealing to giving. We go from taking to giving. So lay aside stealing, get a job, work hard, do something productive and constructive. And as part of that, look for ways to share with somebody who might have a need. And so as you work and you build up your own resources, you don't spend it all on yourself. You don't use it all for your own advancement. You also want to take care of those who have legitimate needs, who aren't able to get a job, who are who have a job but are barely making ends meet, you look for ways to take care of them. So replace stealing with working and giving. Then he goes on in verse 29 and says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. The idea of unwholesome is filthy. It's trash. It's polluted. Um, when he talks about unwholesome, we're talking about something that's rotten or spoiled. The word was used of rotten fish or rotten fruit or even decaying trees or grapes that fall to the ground and lay there to kind of turn mushy and rot. That's this idea of unwholesome. It's rotten. So get rid of Rotten speech, rotten talking, rotten words. Don't let any rotten word proceed from your mouth. Instead, again, we're replacing the negative with a positive. Instead, uh, only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And so instead of rotten trash talk that tears people down, we replace that with words that is good. Notice the word repetition of the word good, like the, the stealer has to do something with his own hands that is good. Here we have speech that is good, meaning it's beneficial. It's helpful to others. It's good for edification. That is building up, like strengthening, helping, building other people up. So let your speech actually be helpful to other people. Build other people up. According to the need of the moment, whatever whatever is needed at that point in time. So according to the need of the person, according to the need of the moment, make sure you're learning to use your words in keeping what, with the situation in a way that will be good and build people up so that it will give grace to those who hear. Notice that you, you want your speech to give grace to be helpful, to be gracious, to speak God's words of truth, life, and grace, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Notice in verses um, 25 through 29, this emphasis on lay aside this, replace it with that. Lay aside this, replace it with that. Lay aside falsehood, replace it with truth. Let's uh, not just be angry. Let's let's make sure in our anger we don't give the devil an opportunity. Um the one who steals needs to work. The one who has been speaking rotten kinds of word ne words need to learn how to speak words that are helpful in building other people up. And so we don't just get rid of the negative, we replace it with the positive. It's not just get eliminating vice, it's cultivating virtue. In verses, it's here in this context then that Paul talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so 
in this context of really the way we interact with people as the body of Christ, the way we love one another, the things we do that are negative, that tear people down, all of that. He says that could grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out in, in God's people. And so now we are united by the very uh, Spirit of God. And when when we begin to tear each other down or we hurt people, we wound each other, we cut each other down, that's grieving. That's bringing sadness and sorrow and hurting the Holy Spirit by whom you individually and you all were sealed for the day of redemption. Think back to Ephesians chapter 1 and that idea of being sealed, right? Like we talked about that there, that you're marked as belonging to God. You're sealed here for the day of redemption. This is a perfect illustration of that already and not yet tension in the New Testament. We have been redeemed, but we're waiting the day of redemption. We're waiting for the final and full day when our redemption is complete. We get our new redeemed body when creation itself is completely liberated and redeemed from evil and corruption and all is made new. And so we were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Don't grieve him. Don't grieve him. Verse 31 and 32 then begins to just list off some general sorts of uh, vices and behaviors that would be grievous to the Holy Spirit and just tear down the body of Christ and what we should replace them with. He says in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Notice these are all like just harsh, hurtful um, practices, bitterness, where we're resentful, we're hard. That's the idea of this word bitter. It's this disposition of someone who, who's just got a sour, negative, cynical attitude that leads to harsh, angry, cutting words and actions toward people. So get rid of bitterness. Clamor. Clamor refers to loud, violent outbursts, like shouting matches, losing your temper where you're shouting at each other. Get rid of that. Slander refers to a backbiting and cutting people down with your words and speaking negative, mean things about people behind their back where you're just destroying their reputation. Get rid of that. Get rid of malice. Malice is ill will. It's wishing bad for another person, right? Like you wish harm comes and I sure hope they get theirs. That's malice. Get rid of all that kind of stuff. And he says, instead of the bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and all of that, he talks about being kind. And so verse 32 says, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. The word kind here in Greek is very similar to the word for Christ. It's krestetos instead of Christos, but it became very uh, common among Christians because it so much sounded like Jesus, and it was such a contrast to typical human way of living that it became sort of a a Christian way of describing their behavior should be kind, where you want what's good for other people. You want what's best for them. So be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Notice that. It's your heart, instead of being hard and calloused, is soft towards others. It's thoughtful. You feel with others, and you feel good things towards them is the idea. Literally, you have good good guts towards them. Like your your inner person is like wanting good for them even to the point of forgiving each other. Like giving grace is the idea of forgiveness here. You give grace to other people. This is the verb form of the word grace that's translated forgiving here. You give grace to others. Um, give grace because they're different from you. You give grace because they're still in process like you're still in process. So you're just giving lots of grace to people and you do it just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Notice that. It, you forgive others 
to the same degree as, with the same generosity as, with the same readiness and warm-heartedness as, God in Christ also forgave you. You forgive others that same way. Now here at this point we have a chapter break in Ephesians, but it's an unfortunate chapter break because the thought doesn't finish until the, the next sentence, which is at the beginning of chapter 5. So jumping into chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, notice, we're directly connected to what has just proceeded. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so imitate God, right? Like you're his child. He's already made you at that, right? Identity precedes behavior. Identity precedes behavior. And so you're imitating God, not in order to become his child, but because you are his child. So be imitators of God as beloved children. Keep the family likeness going. What does he mean by be imitators of God? What exactly, how are you supposed to imitate God? Well, he tells us in the second half of the sentence, be imitators of God as beloved children, and verse 2, and walk in love. God is love. God loved you in Christ. Therefore, imitate God and walk in love. Carry out your life in love, in deep attachment to God and deep attachment to his people where you care about their best interests and you want what's good for them. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. So your love for your fellow Christians, your love for people should imitate Christ's love for you. It should be the same kind of love. It should have the same degree of love, right? It should be just as freely and willingly and sacrificially as Jesus loved you so should you love others. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Notice that. How did Jesus express his love for us? He gave himself up for us. Like he gave himself for us. That's how he expresses love. You do the same thing as a disciple of Jesus that he did for you. So you give yourself like Jesus gave himself. And then Paul expands on Christ giving himself up for us using Old Testament imagery and Old Testament language that was appropriate to the sacrifices. He says he gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. These are all words that picture this idea of offering a sacrifice to God. So Jesus offered himself and sacrificed himself for us, but to God. He offered himself as a sacrifice to God, like a fragrant aroma. That's very common in the Old Testament descriptions of a sacrifice, where uh, the sacrifices go up before God as a fragrant aroma. And so Paul's just picturing up that, picking up that language to describe Jesus's self-sacrificial love for us, also as an offering and a sacrifice to God. And so this blend between laying down his life for others and doing so with uh, being mindful of God as a way of offering himself to God. And we do the same thing. We give ourselves up as an offering to God for the sake of others. And that's what Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 2 is all about. Uh, I would actually encourage you just to spend plenty of time reading through this, thinking through this, praying through this, picturing and imagining this, asking Jesus to shed light into your life where maybe you already are living up to some of this and maybe where you're not so that you can begin to get a clearer picture of what it would look like. And then um, 
Ask him for the strength to decide to live this way as his disciple so that you actually live this text out. That's what Paul wants us to do here. He wants us to live this text out as the people of God. And so spend some time with it. Let this text be part of renewing your mind, of learning Christ, of putting on the truth that you were taught in Jesus. Read it, meditate on it, pray through it until it increasingly begins to shape the way you view your life and the way you treat other people.